Happy Sabbath. We are delighted that you have decided to join and spend your morning with us. We hope that wherever you are, whether it's here locally in the shadow of our Loma Linda University Church or in some other place in the shadow of your own congregation, that this discussion bring light not only to your life, but to the lives of those around you. Now, Joey and I are excited to have another conversation that focuses on the idea of rest, relationships, and healing. But before we do that, it is important to ask God in this our day of rest to enter into our conversation in order that we might have some restoration, some reparation, and some healing. Let us pray. God, we want to thank you so much for what you have done in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you continue to move through our actions, through our words, in the relationships that we have, Lord, in the spaces that we inhabit. We would simply ask that you grant us rest, not only physical rest, but the emotional rest and the relational rest that we so crave. We pray these things, our God, in your name. Amen. Now, you've said and answered a question, a question that you perhaps shouldn't have answered. Maybe it's an answer that is asked when your spouse wonders if he looks as dashing as he did 20 years ago, or if he's as strong as he was, and you can't help but notice those pounds that have been accumulating around his midsection. Maybe it's... Your wife, if she, as she wonders if she can still fit into the dress that she wore for your first date and you, you change the conversation. The reality is we tell, we tell each other these narratives. Sometimes our narratives have to do with the way we look. Other times our narratives have to do with our status, with the way we view ourselves or with the way we consider our relationships and interaction with other people. You know, these, these narratives that we tell each other are mighty powerful. I remember being out on the lake with Alinda once, and we were both swimming. We were having a great time. And Linda was picking that particular moment as we were swimming back to the boat to ask me a question. It was a question that was central to her. It was a question that I really didn't hear as she turned back, looked at me and said, I am really happy at this moment. You have really grown into the husband and the father that I had expected. Now, I, I didn't answer immediately. And so she repeated the statement. She repeated the statement and I, again, didn't answer. And so as we got on the boat, I noticed something was wrong. She asked me why I hadn't repeated. In her mind, perhaps what was happening was the full deconstruction of our marriage. What she didn't know is that I had this narrative that I had been building inside me. It was a narrative driven by insecurity. After all, I felt at that very precise moment wholly inadequate as a parent as a, and as a spouse. But our inability to be honest about the narratives that we were both abiding by was central in driving a wedge between us. And you've done this. You text someone on the phone, perhaps it's someone you love, and you see, you see those three dots appear as the person is writing back. And in that instance, you have created your own narrative. We build these stories in order to protect ourselves. The problem is that often, Often these stories, these stories create angst, they create anxiety, they create worry, they create fear, and they prevent us experiencing the relational rest that God has decided we ought to have. I love the story of Joseph. When we moved into it last week, 
And we talked about the relationship between Joseph and his siblings. We also talked about these generational curses that have befallen this family from the beginning. But today I want to focus on the issue of relational rest as it pertains to the story that you find in Genesis chapter 42 to 50 of the Joseph narrative. Now it strikes me that there are several emotions that you ought to be in tune with as you begin to study this particular section in Scripture. Obviously, at the forefront of these emotions is guilt. You can hear it in the voice of Judah and Simeon as they begin to wonder what to do about the Benjamin problem. You can hear it in Reuben's broken voice as he begins to assign their current plight in Genesis 42 as they now are prisoners of Joseph in Egypt. And he links that experience with what happened all those years ago in that well. So guilt is present. But also, along with guilt, you have the notions of forgiveness. Joseph, in his speeches, makes that present. He talks about God ordaining and God engineering all of his plights in order to provide a path for salvation. He extends the arms of forgiveness no less than two times in narratives and conversations that he has with his brothers throughout these eight chapters. You have the promise then of reconciliation as the brothers bring their father back to Egypt as Benjamin and Joseph reconnect and the family establishes firmly a foothold on Egyptian land. And then after Israel perishes, the brothers are still fearful. Maybe Joseph is just waiting for their father to die to take his revenge. And so you have them ask nervously the question. Well, we're going to jump into that discourse in a few moments. But for now, I just want you to think about The words that they say, we are your slaves, they will say in Genesis chapter 50. And again, Joseph will assure them that what they intended for evil, God has used for good. So you have these experiences, these emotions that are driving the narrative. Guilt, forgiveness, and restoration. But the narrative goes on to look at some basic principles that we have when we fray our relationships. To be sure, the place where you and I find rest is in our relationships. There's nothing better than to go back home. Whether you're a student in college or you're a professional struggling with your own marriage and your children, there is nothing better than to go home to go home and to experience rest as your parents and your family surround you with love. Relationships are intended to provide us respite, which is why it's so interesting that in Genesis 42, we begin with this idea. Joseph's brothers return to Egypt, and at the beginning, they tell their story. As they encounter Joseph without knowing he is them, the text is clear. Joseph recognizes the men immediately, and then the Hebrew says that he treats them as strangers. And so the brothers are forced to tell this story, this story that they have been grappling with, this story that has produced many sleepless nights, undoubtedly. And they tell the story, but they base it on facts. You see, often we talk about our experience with these narratives that we construct as a search for facts. We want to, after all, discover some objective truth. Sigmund Freud, that great psychologist, used to say that the the purpose of psychoanalysis was to serve as emotional archaeologist in order to discover the objective truths. 
But it was what has been discovered in the field of psychotherapy in the last 20 years has actually challenged that notion. In a sense, what we, what we ask no longer is what is the objective truth, but rather what is the narrative that you, are that you are telling yourself? And is that narrative positive or negative? Well, the brothers began by simply stating facts. But very soon, they noticed that something is wrong. By the way, I should note that the story that the brothers tell is told six times in these eight chapters. They repeat the story six times, and it's almost as if you, what you have is a deconstruction of the narrative. Well, let me start by asking you a question, a question that might pre present you with the possibility for rest in your relationships. And that is simply, what kind of stories are you telling yourself? When those three proverbial dots appear on the screen of your life, as you engage with someone else, what narrative are you constructing? Is it a construct a narrative that focuses on dilemmas? Or is it a tale that is rich with possibilities? I would like to posit to you that the first step in achieving relational rest and healing is to reorient the type of stories that we tell each other. The brothers come to Joseph to be sure, and they tell him. They tell him in Genesis 42 that they have come because there's a problem in Canaan. And if you focus on the type of narrative that the brothers begin to tell Joseph, it's a narrative that is fraught with the problems and the dilemmas that they are facing. Healing, forgiveness, assuagement of guilt can never happen unless we begin to challenge narratives that focus on, focus on dilemmas and replace them with stories of hope and possibility. Now, Joseph undoubtedly has recognized his siblings. And it looks, at least to the casual reader of Scripture, that he has already made, his, made up his mind. He already knows, friends, why God has placed him in this particular position. So my question is, why does Joseph then provide a space for anxiety and hardship for his brothers? Why put them in prison? Why ask for them to bring Benjamin back? Why ask to see their father once again? Why ask them to confront time and time again the reality of what they have done? Well, a lot of us and a lot of the current commentaries say that what Joseph is actually doing is testing his brothers. What he is actually doing is seeing if there is a time and a place uh, for them to, to change. And that seems to be part of what's going on. But today I want to present you with a new possibility, a new idea. In this frame of relational rest, could it be possible that what Joseph is actually doing is enacting a process by which his siblings can change their narrative? How, you may ask. Well, here's what happens when we sin. Here's what happens when we destroy relationships. Three primary things occur. The first thing that occurs is we harm ourselves. We harm ourselves because the ethical standard to which we subscribe is demolished, destroyed. When we sin against someone else, we actually denigrate our own ethical standards. And that causes pain, it causes us harm, it causes us anxiety. The second thing, obviously, is not, no long, not only do we harm ourselves, but we harm others. And the third thing that occurs as two people now are hurt is that our relationships suffer. So my question to you is, if that's the reality of human interactions, then how do we restore them? How do we go through the process of saying hurt people don't always need to hurt people 
there's a path forward. Well, I'd like to just venture into the possibility that maybe what happens when a relationship is frayed by sin, that the process of restoration takes three steps. First, first we need to redeem ourselves. Now, I don't mean redemption and that existential self where the sin problem is fixed. No. I mean the dedicated process that you and I act to create new behaviors and new patterns. The process by which we restore our ethical standards to the ideal that we hold for ourselves. So that is process number one. We engage in a the work of redemption. Number two, we repair. We repair the damage that we have done to other people. Restitution must be made. Number three, we restore. So we redeem, we repair, and we restore. Now, could it be possible that what Joseph is attempting to do is to have the brothers began to inhabit a space where they can challenge their narrative and thus redeem themselves. What I mean by that is if you look at the language that is used, time and time again, you'll find it. You'll find it in verse 22, for example, when Reuben speaks and says, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an account for his blood. We must give an account for his blood. So what is actually happening is that these men who sold their sibling into slavery, this men who committed a dastardly act, have now, through the process of many anxious nights, redeemed their ethical standards. They now live by that same standard that they used to live before they committed the act. Now, I want you to think about what happens in the 50th chapter of the book of Genesis. So the first step has already been done. The narrative that they've been telling themselves has actually been challenged. But something interesting occurs. Come to me with, to the 50th chapter of Genesis. I want to read the 15th verse. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge? What if he pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask for you to give your, bro your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers came to him and threw themselves down before them, saying, We are your slaves. But Joseph said, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. By the way, this is verbatim almost what he tells his brothers when he, when he reveals himself at the climax of the story a few chapters before. So the question is, why do the brothers still feel that Joseph might hold a grudge. Well, it's because the process of reconciliation has been started by Joseph. So yes, they have redeemed the standards that they held for themselves before they committed the act, but they haven't gone through the process of reparation. And so in, verse, in chapter 50, what is actually happening is Joseph is providing the opportunity again for there to be the, the engagement of reparation. Now, how do you repair something? Well, the first thing that must happen and the thing that occurs throughout these eight chapters is as the narrative is challenged, acknowledgement and responsibility are taken. So the invitation that we have for you is not only to tell yourselves narratives that are driven not by the dilemmas, but by the possibilities, but also your narratives ought to push you to acknowledgement and responsibility. When you hurt someone, the only possible way to repair that pain is to acknowledge what we have done. 
And acknowledgement takes initiative. In other words, it is incumbent on the party that is hurt to now lay aside ego and go and ask for the process of reparation to begin. And this is what actually happens in, in chapter 50. Now it's the brothers who are taking the initiative. The brothers are attempting to repair something. The brothers are the ones who reach out to Joseph. And so reparation occurs. And once we have redeemed our ethical standards and we have repaired the pain of the person whom we have hurt, then the, uh, the opportunity for healing commences. We can actually restore our relationships. And that's what happens with Joseph's brothers. This whole text, this whole eight-chapter story is deeply linked to this idea that human beings, through a process where we're honest with our stories, where we take responsibility, where we acknowledge and initiate, we can heal our harms. Now, here's the beauty of it. The beauty is that when this happens, well, when it happens, my dear friend, healing occurs. And when healing occurs, rest, rest soon follows. I want to read one last thing for you. It says, Joseph stayed in Egypt along with his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also, the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up to the land, the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph lives a full life. But right there next to him, as secondary characters in his narrative are his brothers. Now what does Joseph do as his life comes to a close? He looks at them and says, I am about to die but rest in the land, the land that God will give you. So today you have a choice. As you are swimming on those troublesome waters, trying to get back on that relational boat, as you hear narratives from people you love, are you going to focus on dilemmas? Are you going to let the anxiety of the unknown continue to rob you of rest? Or do you choose do you choose to focus on possibilities and hope? Hopefully you fill those stories with those two ingredients. And then, then maybe, maybe God will grant you rest. Joey, let's talk about relationships. Hmm. Relationships. You know, your, your illustration of the three dots when somebody is typing and you've put yourself out there, you've asked a question or you made a statement that you're not sure what the reply is going to be in the three dots and only on iOS, um, for those of you that use iOS, um, those three dots are there. All sorts of narratives can, can come up, right? Um, I've, I once heard that the longest period of time is the time between you say, I love you to someone and you wait for them to right. say it back, right? right? And in that space of time, all sorts of thoughts are running through your mind, all sorts of narratives and wild stories, assumptions that we make. And these narratives have such power over us, like you were saying. So I, I love that. I love what you were saying about the power of our narratives and maybe the necessity to reframe those narratives. Yeah. Well, so the the most, I think the most, one of the most exciting developments in the field of psychotherapy has been kind of this reframing hmm. of what the purpose of therapy actually is. Hmm. So before, um, through people that align themselves with the Freudian school. The whole idea was let's find objective truth. Let's find mm -hmm. the event that caused uh, all these other events to occur. Let's challenge that event and let's, let's mine for objective truth. The idea of there being some truth out there mm -hmm. um, was troublesome. So 
a lot of people started asking themselves the question, well, what if we don't challenge the quote-unquote objective truth? What if we challenge the way that you are perceiving and interpreting mm. that truth? Mm. And then what if our goal isn't simply to find uh, this objective truth? What if the goal then becomes, as you're challenging the way you're interpreting that truth, can you then create and construct these stories that you're much more comfortable with, yeah. these stories that make life easier? And so I think that that's what's happening in, in our passage for today. I mm -hmm. think... You know, the brothers come with their objective truth. This is what happened. Mm. Um, we are here because we need food. And Joseph uh, brilliantly just opens up this space for them to begin to question their narratives because he knows that the only path through to reconciliation is if these narratives and these angst and this guilt and all this stuff that, that is weighing these men down mm -hmm. is some sort, some way excised. Wow. So that's, that's so powerful because I, I see that it, it doesn't matter as much what actually happened, but it matters more, at least in, in the ways that we, it, it influences our lives, how I perceived mm -hmm. what happened. Right. And <laughs> when I think about that, I'm reminded of um, many times when I've preached a sermon and somebody has come up to me afterward and said, I loved it when you said this. And I think to myself, I don't think I said that. Right. I don't think I ever said that. I don't, I don't remember writing that. I remember saying that out loud. And yet somehow with something that I said triggered something in their mind that allowed them to um, gain an insight that was very helpful to them, beneficial to them. Um, and so in that moment, it's not, it's not um, necessary for me to speak up and say, well, actually, I didn't say that, but kudos to you right the more important thing is that god is somehow moving in their mm. on their hearts in a way that even i wasn't expecting them mm. expecting god to move beautifully said now i know that a lot of our friends out there aren't preachers so i i was thinking of another analogy that that might be apt because i think joey you're absolutely right it's not just the words we say it's yeah. how those words are being interpreted so um i i can give you an example. It's completely fictitious, by the way. Uh, imagine my wife comes to me and says, hey, you never take the trash out. You mm. don't help around the house. Mm. My initial- that that's absolutely not Absolutely true. fictitious. Yeah. Uh, but my initial reaction always is to question and challenge the words. And I, I can do something like this. Linda, that's- patently false. I actually, on January 20, 2013, took the trash out. Yeah. So your whole argument has now crumbled. Well, what that's actually going to do is it's going to cause more arguments and there's no relational rest there. Mm. And so I think we need to become better at mining the unsaid and at interpreting not just words, but interpreting emotions, because mm. what the emotion is saying when I say you never help me around yeah. the house is I don't feel I have a partner. Mm. And so what would happen if instead of saying, Linda, on January 20, 2013, I took the trash out? What would happen if I said, sweetheart, it it must be really frustrating to feel mm. that you're in this marriage alone and that you don't have a partner? Wow. And she'll probably say something like, well, it is. It really is frustrating. Mm -hmm. And you simply say, I, I can't believe you feel like that. I'm sorry. I'm going to try to be a better partner for wow. you. The, converse, the, the argument ends. And instead of living in the space of anxiety and angst, what you actually move into is a space of peace and rest and reconciliation. And I think that's why this story is just so moving. By the way, um, there's been a lot of uh, Jewish and Christian and even non-faith-believing uh, psychoanalysts that have looked at these eight chapters as kind of the template for better, healthier family dynamics. Mm. Um, and so they say, well, wow, you know, it's, it's amazing that Joseph keeps giving the, these brothers a chance to own their part mm. in the situation. And it, 
and to actually say, I, I want to assume responsibility, but he doesn't leave them there. Mm -hmm. He then says, let me take that guilt that you feel off of you mm -hmm. so that we can move into a space of rest. Wow. Wow. Um, gentlemen, that what Miguel's just shared is worth the price of your time right there. That's powerful, Miguel. Learning all about being a great husband from you. That's I wish I could do that because in the moment, I want to do exactly what you were saying is most damaging, which is to point to the facts and say, no, on this date, I did this. On this date, I did this. On this date, I did. So you are wrong. I'm right. So let's not have this argument anymore. Right. And that doesn't address the actual emotions, the experience that that my wife went through to, to say something like that. Reminds me of... Um, the book, Difficult Conversations, and in it, they say that most difficult conversations are actually three conversations. Um, the first is the conversation about what happened, right? And that's the, the realm that a lot of us dwell in when we're saying, no, I did it this, I did it here, I did it here. But that's actually the least important part mm -hmm. of the conversation. The other two are more, more important, which is what I feel. It's a, it's a conversation about feelings, like you were pointing out. And it's a conversation about identity. Mm -hmm. What does this conversation say about me? Right. What does it say about me as a husband? What does it say about me as a wife? What about my expectations that are placed upon me? And until we address those other two, it doesn't matter what happened in, in number one, right? So our, arguing on the base of number one really makes no difference unless we address the emotions and also the identity issues. Yeah like you were pointing out. Well, and I think that's that's the key, right? Um, it's interesting. When when Joseph's brothers find the the gold in their sacks, mm. they they go to Joseph and they say, "We are honest men." The literal text they say, "We are honest men. Yeah. We would we would never do this." <laughs> the irony of that statement. And the reader is probably saying, "Wait, what?" <laughs> Because I remember you going to your bro to your father with a coat full of blood saying, hey, an animal devoured him. Mm. So are you really honest? Mm. And it's until they are able to, uh, to stop this, just this obsessive compulsion that we have to defend our identity mm. as we want to perceive it that healing can begin. Mm. And so I think you're absolutely right. We all have this mental image of who we would like to be. Mm. But the path and the journey from who we would like to be to who we are, I think necessitates us to be realistic with the fact that sometimes, in spite of our best intentions, we fail in the expectations placed upon us. Mm. And in that moment, we have two options we can defend or we can assume responsibility. Wow. And I find it so refreshing that when they're in prison or when they go back to see uh, their father, they could have said, Reuben could have said, man, this, this Egyptian vizier is just, he's crazy. Yeah. And then they could have gone to Israel and said, and said well, you know, dad, yeah, we're one brother short, um, but you sh we got food and you should have met this guy. He's, he, he's abusive mm. and incredibly uh, intrusive into our lives, but they don't do that. Mm. They take responsibility. Reuben says, look, we're not honest. We actually are. Wow. We have a story. And then the brothers say, no, 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 no. We, Dad, we need to find a way to rescue our, our brother. And so what is actually happening there is that they've relinquished their right to be right mm. in order to assume responsibility. And sometimes that's, uh, I think that's a key step as you're mentioning uh, in our search for reconciliation as it pertains to our relationship. Wow, yeah. So in order for reconciliation to happen, sometimes we have to relinquish the stories we tell ourselves to protect our self-esteem. Because I, I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking of all sorts of stories that I tell myself, like 
if I'm playing tennis and I mess up, I think, oh, it's because I'm tired or my strings need to be changed or all sorts of stories that I tell myself so that I don't feel bad that I'm actually mm -hmm. not as talented at a tennis player that I think that I am. Um, and we do this all the time mm -hmm. in order to protect our self-esteem. I'm reminded of um, in G-Psych uh, about an experiment where they they surveyed people to rate their ability on certain certain talents and certain likability scales and all of that. And what they found was people with, with healthy self-esteem rated themselves higher than their friends rated them. People with low self-esteem rated themselves about the same as their friends rated them, which is kind of a, <laughs> kind of a, um, when I read that, I was like, wow, that's a terrible thing to discover about yourself. But it's true because we tell these narratives to protect our sense of self. This is a way of protecting ourselves. Um, at, but at the same time, it can get in the way of reconciliation and healing if, if we're unwilling to look at the ways that we have actually failed and that we aren't living up to our own, like you said, moral standards, ethical standards, um, and, and hurting the people around us. But at the end, don't you think that doing this not only takes intentionality on our part saying well let me challenge the stories i'm telling myself but it also takes trusting the other person mm. trusting that the other person won't weaponize your vulnerability yeah. because a lot of us weaponize that yeah. so a lot of us say well i don't want to accept that i'm wrong because i'm going to be reminded now that i was wrong in this particular case mm -hmm. the rest of for the rest of time i I still remember that that story, Joey. We Linda and I are getting on that boat, and she's steaming mad. Mm. Like, didn't you hear me have this completely vulnerable moment with yeah. you, and you didn't acknowledge it? Mm -hmm. And had I trusted her more, mm. and said and and told her, "Hey, it's not that I didn't acknowledge it; it's that I'm having these own doubts about myself mm -hmm. that." Uh, that really challenged the very ethos of who I am. Yeah. Um, had I trusted her more than I could have spared her that pain. And so mm -hmm. I think sometimes not only does it take a lot of courage, friends, you've got to be courageous in challenging your narratives, but you also got to trust people. Mm -hmm. You've got to find a way to trust people um, because what ultimately happens and, and what's surprising and what's just hope filling is that when you trust people, people tend to surpass your expectations, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Joseph isn't out for revenge. He's out for redemption. Mm -hmm. And everything he does from chapter 43 on is so that his siblings might be redeemed. Yeah. And so what if we began to say, hey, I'm going not only to choose to challenge those narratives that I'm mm -hmm. telling myself, I'm going to be open about that reality with other people. Um, could it be possible that, that we'll find people that are not only understanding, but that are encouraging us as mm -hmm. we are on, on our own path towards redemption? Wow. You know, Mark Golston, um, psychologist Mike, Mark Golston, he talks about um, in reference to us, it's people surprising us if we, mm -hmm. if we show that kind of trust. He talks about that as an empathy jolt. Mm -hmm. He says, when all else fails, bear your neck. Be vulnerable because chances are if you're vulnerable, people will respond in kind, which is a really scary place to put yourself in. And yet, if you've ever been in a space where you were fighting it out with somebody and that person all of a sudden became vulnerable and they admitted something that was just hard for them to say, a lot of times it just shocks you out of, of the you know tunnel vision that we typically get in in these arguments. So that's powerful. So that's why I think it's so amazing what Joseph did in this space that, because if I were Joseph, I would be having a lot of resentment, right. a lot of anger, really be focused on trying to get some revenge. Like, what can I do to these brothers who did such terrible things to me, right? Um, and yet he's in a space like you're pointing out, not only to, not, only to um, not take revenge, but also trying to help them to come to a place where they can be in reconciliation. How do you think Joseph got to that place? How does Joseph 
Because the story is completely different if Joseph is hell-bent on revenge, right? Right. The story turns Absolutely. out completely different. So how does Joseph get into a place where he's able to now then provide the space for his brothers to learn and grow mm. and eventually get to reconciliation? I think it's I think again it's it's part of the narrative that that Joseph has decided to tell himself. And so we're going back to this idea of relational rest yeah. is contingent on the narratives we tell ourselves. So what is the narrative that Joseph is telling himself? Is it I through my good looks and my hard work, the good Protestant work that work ethic, I've made it to this point. I have finally fulfilled my destiny. Yeah. Because that could be, right? Yeah, that could be a narrative that we tell, that yeah. we tell ourselves. I know I'd like to think that yeah. the successes that I've had in life are because of my own giftedness in, in any particular area. That's not what Joseph does. Mm. That's never the when when he's when he's with his brothers back in back in Canaan, when he's at Potiphar's house, like we were talking uh, last week, and now when he's at the palace. The narrative is never, I've made it mm -hmm. through here. The narrative is actually, man, my life has been painful. It's been a roller coaster, but it's ultimate, ultimately being God-led. Mm. And so everything that happened to me, it's not that God caused it, but God utilized these things as kind of character building blocks. Yeah. And that is, I think, a choice that Joseph is making as he is facing all these different tragedies in life. And I think that's why, in the end, he's, he's, he's able to look back and say, well, um, it wasn't really because of me. It's because mm. God has been forging my character throughout, throughout my life. And so now I want to be an instrument as we seek to forge your character as as my siblings, mm -hmm. which is what ultimately happens in those last seven seven chapters. What you're having is this exercise in character formation for Joseph's brothers. So what keeps him from becoming bitter is a belief in God, mm -hmm. is a trust in God. Wow, that is, that is so well said. That is so powerful what you're saying here, that the narrative he tells himself is not oh, despite all odds, mm -hmm. despite the fact that my brothers had it out for me, um, I was able to be successful and now I'm going to rub it in their face. Mm -hmm. His story is, no matter what choices my, my brothers made, God was with me. God led me through. This was a part of God's plan. And it's echoed, like you said, yeah, as you were talking, I was thinking, at every turn there is, because God was with Joseph, mm -hmm. this happened. Because... And so the, the author even wants it to be perfectly clear that it's not about Joseph, mm -hmm. it's about God. Yeah. And Joseph somehow sees that in the midst of what all the things that he could have been bitter about, about being rejected by his brothers, by being thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, unjustly accused of, um, of a crime he didn't commit and being right. thrown into prison, right. forgotten by, by the guy that he helped out mm -hmm. in prison. Like there's so many reasons for him to be bitter, but he doesn't end up being bitter because of his belief in God. And that is way different to the narrative that is pervasive in all our culture, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we know the greatest basketball player of all time. Sorry for you, Laker fans. It's not LeBron James. Um, he, he talks about this. You know, Michael Jordan in his book and in this last uh, series of uh, documentaries that was produced by ESPN mm -hmm. talks about the fact that he got cut from his high school basketball team as like this driving force that filled him with this unquenchable win, win desire to win and to win at all costs and to prove that he was good enough. Mm. And as I was hearing this, I was like, I don't want to be like Mike. I'm sorry. No, I don't want to be like Mike. Let it go, man. That happened 30 years ago. Like, let it go. It's yeah. let move on. And mm -hmm. I think that is so human and it's kind of engineered and it's engineered into us. It's intrinsic in us that, that where we say, hmm, somebody wronged me. I'm going to use that as fuel to succeed. Yeah. That's not what's happening here. Wow. He's not using it as fuel to succeed. He's saying, God is building my character. 
And whether I am the second in command or a shepherd or a prisoner or a slave, mm. I am going to continue this process of character formation. Yeah. If the brothers find him at Potiphar's house mm. as a slave instead of in the palace, I guarantee you the conversation would have been the same. Mm. Because Joseph's success and failure is not contingent on what the end result is, right? It's yeah. contingent on the fact that we win not based on measurable metrics, but based on the character we develop. Wow. Wow. That was just, that's revolutionary what you're talking about there. Because yeah, I mean, that is the narrative that goes on in, in the world around us is this idea that we need to use this as a chip on our shoulder. It's fuel, right? And that may have helped Mike be a better player, but did it really make him a better person? I wonder, I don't, I don't know Michael Jordan personally, but I wonder what that type of fuel does to the heart, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the... Anne Lamont says, um, uh, holding over unforgiveness over a person and expecting it to hurt them is like injecting, ingesting rat poison, and expecting to, it to kill, the, to rat. kill the rat. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's basically what we're doing when we hold unforgiveness in our hearts is it creates this bitterness that, that destroys us inside mm -hmm. out. But the way out of that is to trust that, like you were saying, our success is not dependent on what we do, what we accomplish, what people do to us. Our, our success is is contingent on what God is doing within us and the plan that God has for our lives. Now, that sounds really good, and it's it's you know it's difficult to do. We don't want to be too pie in the sky. We want to mm. leave you, I think, with one thing that you can do because we've all hurt people. We're all on this journey of character formation. I think, Joey, that one of the things that I need to get better at is this this painful thing where, whereby I take responsibility. Um, we talked a lot about identity. We talked a lot about these conversations that are difficult. But we've never, we, we haven't really talked, and I, I want to just briefly get, get your ideas on, on the power that taking responsibility has. Mm. Uh, Desmond Tutu writes extensively about this as part of his work on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The fact that victims, whether they be of racial inequality or genocide or slavery or even relational issues, want to hear more than anything else that we take responsibility for mm. what we do. So how important is it uh, in our process to find relational rest, uh, this idea of just accepting responsibility for what we've done? I think it's powerful. And I think we see that in the lives of, of, of these brothers, because whereas we, we've just been talking about how Joseph didn't hold on to bitterness and he was able to, God was able to leave and work miraculously in his life, despite all the wrong that had happened to him that he wasn't responsible for. These brothers, on the other hand, you can see how not taking responsibility for what they did to their brother impacted them and how they were still holding on to that even after he had forgiven them, mm -hmm. right? Like you pointed out in, in Genesis 50, after their father had passed away, they were still, that was still weighing over their hearts and over their heads. So that inability to take responsibility, that's, that's so damaging. And so um, not just to the person that, 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 we want to ask forgiveness from, but even to ourselves, we see how, how important it is to, to take that responsibility. Because ultimately it affects the way we see God, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that might be why we're so frightened when it comes to taking responsibility. Think again about what Reuben says as they're in, the, in prison. Mm -hmm. Serves us right. God is now paying us back. Yeah. It's like, no, that's not how God works. Look at look at Joseph and look at all that's happened to him. And he still turns and says, you know what? God is a good God. Yeah. Everything that happened to me was for my was for my growth. Yeah. That's his narrative. The others, they're constantly living in anxiety, waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yes. Because God's gonna get even. Yeah. And I think when we understand who God truly is, has a graceful a loving, merciful father, then we take responsibility, not because it's going to grant us a better spot in heaven, but because it's going to 
give us the rest that we so crave in mm -hmm. our relationships here and now. So the peace that you're talking about mm -hmm. uh, within ourselves and obviously the peace and the connection with others. Yeah, that's so true. This, you know, when I think about Judah and Judah, Judah was really the instigator for mm -hmm. selling Joseph into slavery, right? And you see like a 180 degree turn in his life right. and how he he responds to now Benjamin being put into prison, the possibility of Benjamin being put into prison and him stepping up. But really the turning point moment kind of happens in, in Genesis 37, 38, where um, Tamar calls mm -hmm. him out, right? About all the terrible things that he's done to her. And then, and then he says, you are more righteous than right. I, right? And, uh, you know, um, a, lot of, a lot of scholars point out to that moment as being the first time that a human apologizes to another human in all of the Torah, which I, I had to go back after I read that. I was like, wait, wait, there's got to be other ones, nope. but th there aren't. That is the first instance and how powerful that turning point was for the life of Judah mm -hmm. and how appropriate it is that Jesus, a great deliverer, comes through the line of Judah. Mm. This man who wasn't always right, mm. but had the ability to admit that he was wrong. Mm. And that, I think that is, that, that is the crux of the gospel, mm. right? Is, is the human part is the willingness to admit that I'm wrong. Wow. Um, and God wow. is, God's part is to make us right. Friends, I don't think there's anything more uh, that we can say after that, after that beautiful summary that Joey just gave us. So Joey, pray us out. That was, that was powerfully stated. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for being a God who never gives up on us, always continues to reach out to us, always creates spaces like Joseph did for his brothers. You create spaces where we can reestablish our, our, our narrative. We can reframe our narratives, the stories that we tell ourselves that we sometimes deceive ourselves with so that we, have to, we can avoid responsibility for the things that we did wrong. So we ask that you help us to, to open our eyes to those moments mm. so that we can repent and admit that we are wrong like Judah did, like the other brothers did, and so that we can reestablish a rest in our relationship with you Amen. and with each other. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May God richly bless you, give you rest until we meet again. Have a wonderful rest of the Sabbath.